Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, I'm joined by Fergie Kancade, Director of Global Athletes and Ambassadors at Lululemon. Thanks for joining me today, Ferg. Yeah, thanks for having me, Charlie. I want to start by kind of taking things back to the beginning of your career. You've been able to work on some really, really cool projects over the years, but how did you get involved in marketing? I sort of got into marketing through almost just circumstance or or like fell into it, I suppose. Um, You know, I always was on the sports side of things, you know, growing up in, in Vernon. You know, for those who don't know, it's in the interior of BC and there's not much to do outside of sport. There's a great ski hill, Silver Star, and there's awesome mountain biking trails and lakes and whatnot. So it's sort of breeded sport for a lot of us. For me, it was skiing. And I thought that I would go down the route of being a professional skier, much like a lot of my friends did. And, you know, that would be my career. And I I sort of quickly started realizing that that actually wasn't my core capability. <laughs> you know, I, I was a good skier, still am, but um, in comparison to the people I was hanging out with who went on to be, you know, the world's best, uh, I was not even close. And so my dad pushed me into going to university and I started that, but I knew that I wanted to always be involved in sport. If it wasn't going to be professional athlete route, I wanted to somehow work within that space So I went to school always with that in mind, like every case study I did was about sports or brands that work in sports or work with athletes. And as I was going through that, I just tried to keep my foot in that space. And so I remember I, you know, was in, I think, first or second year university and I was working at the ski shop here in town and uh, was invited to go to Vegas for the ski snow sports trade show and worked with a brand called Arage. And my role was to literally model outerwear for (laughs) people, for buyers from stores. Nice. So I spent like 12 hours a day on the floor at this trade show in Vegas, just putting on jackets, taking off jackets, walking around, showing people the features and stuff. And that's really like where it all started. I started meeting people in the industry, different uh, sales reps or marketing managers or athletes. And it just sort of snowballed from there. And, and I would get invited to go on catalog shoots here and there and do different things. And as I was going through this, this progression of school and sort of trying to build my network, you know, one of my best friends, TJ Schiller, who was the best slopestyle skier on earth for a long time, asked me to just help him out with a couple emails. And he didn't feel like he was set up to write emails back to his sponsors with, you know, a bit of a tough conversation. And so that's where it really all started. I started out helping people like write emails and (laughs) put together a proposal and that sort of thing. And so we did that for a little bit, just kind of doing it, just helping out. And eventually TJ said, Hey, uh, you know, I've been dropped from my uh, eyewear sponsor. I need to find a new one. If you want to just take that on and go find me a new eyewear sponsor, I'll give you a commission. And so I was like, all right, that sounds like a cool project. Took it away, uh, ended up signing him to, I believe it was Dragon at the time. And that kind of kicked off this like agency idea of, you know, an action sports agency based in Canada, which at the time didn't really exist. But there was a lot of really talented athletes, especially in the action sports space coming out of Canada. And 
and people that I knew and, and had contact with. So third year of university, I really started digging into that. I was going to school and, and running my business and it just snowballed from there. You know, the, the more deals you sign, the more things you do with brands, the more people you meet and it just kind of continues on from there. So I uh, did that for a bit. And I was managing Kaya Tursky in, in like 2010, 2011. It was right when uh, skiing was being uh, included into the Olympics. So there was a lot of money getting injected into the sport. Um, and I did a deal uh, with Kaya for uh, a Red Bull sponsorship. And I started getting to know the team in the marketing department at Red Bull. Uh, and started, you know, really getting an understanding of what that brand was like and, and really inspired actually by what they were up to. And so in 2011, uh, they ended up giving me an offer to go in-house to take over athlete marketing for Red Bull Canada. Jumped on that, thought that I'd do it maybe for a year or two years, get to know a bunch more contacts and then come back to running my agency with, you know, a, a lot more ins with different brands and, and be able to really blow it up. And uh, ended up staying there for, I think, seven and a half years <laughs> with Red Bull, which was great. Um, and then just was looking for something different and uh, started chatting with the team over at Lululemon and getting an understanding of, of what the brand was up to. It was always a brand that was up to really interesting things and uh, and and had a really unique capture on their market and their guest. And so after about a year of conversation with Lululemon, ended up coming in-house with them and, and uh, taking over their athlete marketing side and then have evolved since then to now I oversee all of their um, their ambassadors and athletes and uh, sport partnerships and a, you know, a few other random things that sort of come across my desk day to day. So you've done a little bit is, is what, what I think we're hearing here. But I think one of the things that sticks out to me, which is so interesting, was how, you know, everything that you've done has been rooted in sport. But with what you said about writing emails for TJ or, you know, working in other aspects of the business, you've built skills across, you know, communications, digital PR strategy, whatever it is. Can you talk a little bit more about like how that kind of came to be? Why you did that? Has it helped you? That sort of thing? I've always really been interested in so many different pieces of of different businesses. You know, there's there's so much to learn about all the different functions of of a business and what actually keeps the lights on. Um, so, you know, I think at the at the core of it, it's like the general interest to be a know it all, and <laughs> that can be self serving a little bit. You know, uh, I, I think about whether it be informing digital strategy or making movies or, or whatever it might be. But I always just informed myself on all of the, the brass tacks of those different functions because one, I was genuinely interested in it. And two was that I knew that if I was able to understand it and speak the language, I would be able to influence it more as well. And so if I wanted to get my priorities done and, and the projects off the ground that I felt passionate about, I knew that I had to understand what, uh, you know, maybe in some cases what that channel needed. Um, and so to, you know, thinking back of like the Red Bull days to propose like a mountain bike movie that I wanted to go do in order for me to be able to make that uh, happen, I had to be able to speak the language of the media house folks, the production partner, the athletes, the social media team, and understand what all of their priorities were. Because if I could layer in their priorities into mine, 
things just get green lit. But if you're trying to push against a brick wall and you're trying to force your priority into someone else that actually that's not their priority, you're never going to get anywhere and you're not going to make any friends along the way. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you talk about this idea of translating and it's almost like it's, it's kind of like, sounds like it's internal sales almost. Yeah, a little bit, right? Like you have to, you have to get people excited about what you're, you're excited about really. Mm. Um, and so that's sort of like, yeah, it's like internal sales or like almost internal marketing. Like you, you have to be able to go lobby the folks that you're working with in order to get your sort of dream projects or, uh, you know, in some cases it might be really creative ideas that sound pretty weird, uh, mm-hmm. out of the gate. And if you can understand what they need, much like you have to understand what your customer needs to market them, then you can, you can sort of package that up and make it work. Right. But that's the first step is, is getting them bought in and then, you know, on to the next step of actually how do we get our customer or our consumer bought into what we're trying to do here. That makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm just thinking about with your background and where marketing kind of is, this idea of balancing art and science, right? If we think of kind of marketing as, as a pendulum or that, that goes kind of back and forth between the two of them, we've seen, you know, over the last few years with the rise of digital, we've kind of seen that marketing pendulum swing back and forth from brand focus to performance focused. Why do you think that's the case? And, and how do you think we got here? Well, it's sort of the, the natural ebbs and flows of everything as things modernize and change over time. But, you know, if you think about marketing or advertising way back in the day, there wasn't a lot of insight available. You know, probably the, the, the most data or insight available would be like, okay, we roughly know that we're distributing X amount of newspapers in X amount of regions and our readership based on subscription is this demographic, whatever it might be, right? And then advertisers or or marketers just had to do their best to be, you know, above the fold, ideally close to the front before people get bored. And so there was like some, some sort of like nuance to it that people understood, but there was no real way to measure it. Like, yes, I can be on the front cover of a newspaper and it roughly hits this many people, but I have no idea how many of those people actually like our product, like our brand, would have a propensity to buy, have bought before. There is none of that insight, right? Mm-hmm. We don't even know what their interests were other than newspapers. And so now as things shift, have shifted into digital over the years, like now we have all that hard data. You know, we know exactly what our sort of demographics are, our targets are. We can target them more with paid, like all of those things are at our fingertips. And so now we've gone from what was very much gut informed, like, okay, I think being above the fold is going to be better than being below the fold. Those types of things now have shifted to very hard data of like, no, I know exactly who this person is that's consuming this content or engaging with an ad. And so as a result of that, trying to be efficient with budgets, things have swung very far into that realm where no one wants to spend a dollar unless they can see two coming back. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. You know, talking about that that brand and performance focus, do you think that with the pendulum swinging more towards that performance thing, do you think this has created a fear within marketers about making mistakes? And if so, if you agree with that, why? I don't necessarily think there's a fear about making mistakes, but I think there's a fear of not performing. Because now what you have, right, is when you have something that 
is fully performance marketing focused. And then you have like a creative idea that is informed by like gut or experience or innovation, let's say. If you're going to invest the same amount of dollars into those two things, you have one that is unproven and untried. And then you have one that is known. And I know that if I want to hit marketing executives in Vancouver named Charlie who are male, I can do that right now versus the creative idea where they say, I don't know, you're investing the same amount of money. Is it going to work? Are you going to actually reach the intended audience? How's it going to be perceived? So I think that's one piece of it. And when everything is measurable, I feel like the propensity to fail is stripped away from people in creative marketing positions. And I think that failure is such an important piece of innovation and modernizing things because without failure, you don't learn. And without failure, you don't try. And so if you want to be creative and you want to do things different, you have to have an ability to fail and not have fear of that. So it sort of is a fear about making mistakes, but it's Mm -hmm. like, it's calculated mistakes, calculated risk where I know that if I have the backing of my leadership team or my bosses to go out and try something, regardless of whether it might fail, then I know I can try Mm -hmm. and I know I can learn and I know I can innovate. And if you look at a lot of the things that, you know, are really innovative and cutting edge today, there's a super high propensity to fail. And in fact, probably a lot of people did fail trying to get to that point. So we need to instill that culture back into marketing of don't go and try to fail, but don't be afraid to fail when you're trying something new. That makes a lot of sense. I, I Another guest on the show was kind of talking about, he made the reference towards gambling, right? And how it's like when you're gambling, you can, you can throw it all down on one number if it's say roulette, or you can make strategic bets and, you know, be somewhat informed about it and then take things and learn things as you go from there. So it's interesting to hear you, you say that as well. I want to talk a little bit about the different aspects related to the pendulum of marketing. You know, so if we're talking about marketing itself, the creative aspect and data, how do you think all that stuff fits together? My feeling is, is it's, it's all about taking each one of those pieces to inform your plan. Insights and measurement is amazing. All the data that we can capture now is amazing. So I don't want it to sound like I'm against performance marketing or I'm against measuring things because I'm not, but I just know that it's only one piece of that puzzle and you need to have other pieces of the puzzle like creative, like uh, innovation, uh, all of that, like gut instinct uh, in order to create a really good plan. And actually creative is a good call out there because if you look at insights and creative, those are two pieces that don't fit that well together. They're actually probably on the two opposite sides of where the pendulum is swinging. And so you need to be cautious about how you pepper those things in. But what we know is that, you know, an insight might say really good, engaging, creative looks like this, but your brand might actually tell you otherwise, because that insight doesn't match up with the recognition of your brand or where you're trying to take it. And so, you know, I think it's, it's nice to have the insight and you still have to have the opportunity to say, actually, that doesn't fit for us. We're going to go this way because it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's it's interesting to hear you say, you know, putting two things on the end of the spectrum, because if it's like data and insights and then creativity, that kind of maps to art, art on one end and science on the other end. And then, you know, the role of marketing kind of in the middle as almost like the conductor 
to use like an orchestra example there of how it all kind of comes together to make a nice sound <laughs> to continue the, the analogy there. I also think too, and, and you know this, um, this sort of sentiment, but you can't be afraid to just do something because it's cool or because it's interesting or because it's new. And insights might actually tell you the opposite, like don't do that. But you still have to go and just, you know, like the main insight being this is cool and it's the right thing to do. Let's just try it. Yeah, I think back to time at Red Bull where someone said to us this idea of going through the right steps versus doing the right thing. You can go through the right steps and do the wrong thing, but doing the right thing is always the right thing. And I know that's probably that can be kind of perceived as as fluffy, but I've I've kept that top of mind throughout my career and I don't necessarily know how to articulate it without kind of sounding pretty dumb, but at the same time like there have been aspects of it where I've definitely like felt this like we've gone through the right steps and we actually did the wrong thing. But then there are some times where I'm like, yeah, we kind of threw process and organization to the to the side and like we're doing this because it's just the right thing to do. 100%. Let's switch gears a little bit here. Many marketers I've kind of talked to, whether it be clients of Metric or people who work in marketing who are friends of mine, believe that this area of the business, marketing, is kind of going to go under the microscope in the present or the future. Do you agree or disagree with that and why? I guess it depends on how you define under the microscope. You know, I think that there's going to be a lot more investment going towards marketing, you know, looking at like just recent data out of the States, they're saying like the, you know, the the general role of a marketing manager is going to grow by like 26,000 jobs in the next 10 years. And so just by that, like that's probably at least 13,000 companies that are going to be focusing on marketing or, you know, having a focus on marketing. Let's put it that way. So, I think with that, with more investment, obviously the microscope gets a little bit closer, but I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that because I think having, having a microscope and having someone poke holes in your ideas is actually just a piece of the process and it's how we, how we grow and how we learn and how we bring in diverse perspectives into what we're trying to do. Yeah. And I guess that goes back to what you were kind of saying earlier about having to kind of internally sell things and convince people of things that comes with having this deep understanding of, of the business as a whole and how you play into it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, there's, there's one piece of like internally selling it, but also I think too, just understanding if you want to be a creative marketer, you have to understand all the little bits and pieces of the business and how things work, because that's actually sometimes where the ideas come from. So do you have any examples of that? Like off the top of your head, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but that's, that is actually really interesting when you say that. This isn't actually an idea that I've seen come to life, but you know, in the, in the age that we live in where uh, the environment and being sustainable is really, really important, or at least it should be to a lot of brands is I think that marketing can really help out stakeholders in that side of the business from like a supply chain and manufacturing and all those things. And I think there's an opportunity to understand those things and how can, how can an athlete, let's say, you know, in my space of work, help promote the sustainability of a supply chain around a brand or help people understand that? Because what we know is like consumer behavior is going to be shifted by the sustainability of a brand. I have a higher propensity to buy from a brand that cares about the environment. That's for sure. And I know a lot of people are like me, but there's a lot of brands that I actually don't know how sustainable they are without looking at, okay, maybe my e-commerce package got shipped in recycled plastic or recycled cardboard, but I don't know what their supply chain looks like. They might be terrible. So I think there's actually an opportunity for marketers to start thinking about those things that 
normally we wouldn't think, oh, a consumer really wants to, to see a cool story about our supply chain. But actually, in this day and age, they do. And you can't identify those opportunities as a marketing person unless you understand it. That's super, super interesting. And I guess that that kind of ties nicely into the thing that I wanted to talk about next, which is this power of kind of brand and, and community within marketing. Obviously, Lululemon is a brand that's known for creating an incredible sense of community. Given the current climate that we're in, why does community matter so much right now? And not saying that it didn't matter before, but I feel like that's something that's recently has kind of bubbled up to the top again during this global pandemic. Community is a bit of a buzzword in, in marketing right now, for sure. You know, I think most businesses now have some sort of a community uh, or like field marketing aspect to their brands. And, and I expect that that will continue to grow. But community is really just like the physical sort of interpretation of your brand. It's like the, the relationships that make your brand matter. You know, it's, it's sort of like you are who you hang out with a little bit. And so that can have incredible power for brands from, from the landscape of giving you feedback on campaigns or products or, or innovation ideas. They can be great advocates for you. All of that is amazing. But I think what's really important in community and, and what we're seeing really powerfully today, given the, the current climate, is that community is what you need to invest in, in the good times and in the rough times. And businesses in the current state that have invested or talked about community a lot in the good times, and then they're divesting in the bad times, that's over for them because people aren't going to forget and those that have invested in the good times and now are investing more in the tough times, those are the brands that I think their communities are really going to rally behind them and support them because it's a just like any community, you know, communities we live in, it's a push-pull. They support us and we support them. And if it's not both ways, it doesn't work. I really like what you said about it being a fluffier buzzword in marketing, because I completely agree. I kind of have a follow-up to that. So how can marketers effectively communicate the power or the value of community up the chain? Because like, if it is one of those things that is perceived as, as buzzwordy or fluffy in, in marketing, do you have any pieces of advice for, for marketers who are trying to communicate the value of it? Like, I feel like you do such a great job of breaking things down. So I'd love to, to hear anything you got on that. My perception of it is that because at the core of community you have to be doing the right things for the community. It really is that mix of the measurable and the unmeasurable. Um, so, you know, yes, you can look at uh, your community and how they're driving sales. You know, maybe, maybe your close community has a discount code or a trackable link or that, you know, there's some, some way in which you can show commercial value to your community. That's one piece of it for sure. But then where the, really, the power in community comes from doing the things that you can't measure. How are we supporting our community uh, while they're navigating the tough times of COVID-19? That to me is the, the things that you make decisions about doing the right thing versus the measurable thing. And together, it makes the, the perfect sort of pie, you know? So right now, I think it's, it's prudent of brands to invest in communities in whatever way they're able to and just do the right things to support people. To me, that's what people should be doing. However, in good times where maybe it becomes a little bit more commercial, a little bit more transactional, maybe that's where you measure it a little bit more. Like, how is our community driving people to come into our restaurant or, you know, whatever your business might be? I think you can start measuring and engaging the community to create that engagement with your brand a little bit more. But 
it's it's a fine dance of doing the right thing and doing the commercially viable thing. One of the things that came to my mind was an excerpt from a book by Scott Galloway, The Algebra of Happiness. And one of the things he says in that book, which immediately just kind of popped into my head was uh, he talks about this idea of fighting unfair. And basically what fighting unfair is like, what are you willing to do? And, and it's, it's a book that's tailored towards professional career development, that sort of thing. But he talks about fighting unfair. What are you willing to do that nobody else is willing to do to set yourself apart? And it's almost kind of like what, you're, what, I, what I heard there was like, it's like that for brands. What are brands willing to do that no other brands are willing to do to set themselves apart from a, a brand affinity perspective or a community perspective? Yeah, absolutely. And, and those things do pay dividends later. You know, doing those things that support your communities or it could even be supporting your internal communities, your staff, right? Like it's right now it's, it's, it's challenging times and people both within businesses, you know, entrepreneurs in the communities, like everyone is having a, a, a challenging time. So what are you willing to do that actually doesn't make business sense will make sense later. And you just have to trust in that. And so that's one of those things that right now, no, we can't measure that. However, in three years, you might see a bit of an upswing on your sales numbers, and it could be attributed back to that. But that's why it's important not to measure everything. Because if you think about measuring that, that seemingly silly decision for the business to support the community, if you measure that, the data is going to tell you, don't do it. If you don't measure it, and you go with your gut, and you go with what's right for the people that matter to your business, it will pay you back later. I find it funny because the podcast is called Measure What Matters and we're talking about not measuring things or, or measuring, you know, doing things in a balance. So I do agree. I think one of the things that we talk about a lot internally at Right Metric is this idea of informed intuition and that balance. Just because you can count things doesn't mean you should count them or just because things are hard to count doesn't mean you, you shouldn't count them. And so I think that, yeah, it it goes along the lines with what you're saying in terms of having that balance of, of art and science. So that makes a lot of sense to me. What I love always coming back to is insights inform the plan. And I think that's great. Insights do not write the plan. So to, to the name of the podcast, almost it's perfect, right? Measure what matters. If it doesn't matter, don't measure it. Damn. That was smart. (laughs) I, I do agree with that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's well said. Let's talk a little bit about the future. We've kind of talked about, you know, present. We've talked about your background. What gets you the most excited when it comes to marketing? There's a lot of stuff in marketing right now. You know, there's, there's new platforms, there's, there's buzzwords, there's kind of all this stuff flying around. What is the thing that kind of sticks out to you that you get most excited about? Something I've been reading uh, a lot about recently, and, and this is not like a crazy new concept in marketing, but... Uh, it's just the, the concept of contextual marketing. Um, and it, I think that it's actually a result of a pendulum swing is that people are talking about this a lot. And the idea of the concept is generally just that you're giving your customer what they need, when they need it, where they need it. So you're not blasting them with all kinds of noise all the time. You're being really conscious about what their needs are at any given moment and you're adapting your marketing or your content or your plan to suit that. And I think it's, it's really smart. And I think it's really timely in a, in a time right now where, you know, we're facing a little bit of compression of the abundance. Like I, I think for a long time, it was sort of like a winner's economy. You know, you could start any business, you could launch any product, 
if you had a bit of a paid budget, you could probably get some consumers and start making money. And now that sort of scattergun approach doesn't work or, or will cease to work as well as it did. And so I think the idea of contextual marketing, especially around content, is really, really interesting. And, and it's actually the perfect marriage of insights and creativity where I need the insights to understand the context. And then I need the creativity to create content or serve my consumer with that. And that might be, you know, it might be content in the form of moving images, but it, it might be content like, uh, what are we delivering for our, our consumers at experiences or events? Like, what do they need? What is, when we get out of this, you know, isolated state of COVID-19 and people are able to safely gather together again, what event do they need? You know, so that's like the, that to me, like really gets the juices flowing as to how do I create the best possible marketing experience for someone based on what they actually need, not based on BS. Yeah, absolutely. And I have a follow up to that. On the flip side of it, is there anything that you think is overhyped or a distraction? I don't know if this is overblown. I, I, I don't actually have the answer for this. And I don't know if anyone does. If they do, I'd love to hear it. But I'm really curious to see how people's behaviors change as a result of the current scenario that we're in. And so I don't know that it's overblown. It could be perfectly proportionately blown. Um, but, <laughs> but I'm interested to see like, you know, the culture that we're in right now where we're on Zoom calls day in and day out, whether it be with our family or our colleagues. Uh, we're doing uh, workouts over Instagram. We're buying stuff online, we're getting takeout food, all these things, you know, a lot of people have said, this could be the new norm, we need to understand that like people may not want to gather the way we used to before coronavirus. And so we need to be thinking about how we do things differently going forward. And I think an element of that is probably true. But I'm really interested to see what behaviors shift, or if we just bounce back and our behaviors go back to the same. I hope they don't. I think there's a lot we can learn from this, but I'm just, I'm very curious to see where we're at when the dust settles and, and who knows when that will be. So I think that that dictates it a little bit as well as how long does this go for people to actually form new habits versus just bounce back and, and get back into, you know, what my day to day was six weeks ago. Yeah. I feel like just to expand on that, it's almost like COVID has been almost an accelerant to certain behaviors. And yeah, I, I, it's interesting to hear you talk about the idea of building habits, right? Because you can't necessarily build a habit overnight. But as we start to get in this kind of prolonged period, you start to form habits, you know, whether it be, sure. you know, like I think about delivery groceries, right? Like some people who, who would typically go to the grocery store who have now been forced to get on an app or whatever. And now they've maybe had that experience and they're like, whoa, I really like this. I'm like, yeah. I'm going to do delivery groceries as we go forward. Or I think about, you know, Peloton and like their growth. That's been one that's widely reported where some people are like, yeah, I loved going to the spin class in the, in a studio, but I also love doing Peloton classes and yeah, it's, it's interesting. What we're interested in, I think is how we're going to, how, how to quantify that. And that's something that we're trying to look at on an ongoing basis with, with our clients. But when all the dust settles, it's going to be fascinating to look back at pre COVID, you know, what those behaviors were and those patterns were, and then like how this has shifted because, you know, there will 
likely be another pandemic in the future. I'm not a medical doctor, but I'm like, in the history of humanity, there will be another pandemic at some point, um, mm-hmm. as, as there has been. And what will be unique about this one is that we actually have data available to be able to understand that. Whereas, you know, there wasn't the, the amount of data available back with the Spanish flu or whatever they were comparing it to previously. Yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm the same way. And, and it's going to be fascinating to also see just how, how brands are, are navigating that. Yeah. And I think that there's, you know, there's things we're seeing already, like going to the grocery store once a week, let's say, or, or as, as little as you can and standing at least six feet away from people. You know, to me, I was at the grocery store the other day and I was like, this is great. Like, why do I need to be within six feet of someone else? What's so important to us about us being, you know, uh, over each other's shoulders, grabbing soup cans, you yeah. know, it doesn't need to be that way. And so that's just like a societal thing that actually I kind of enjoy, but an element of that is going to shift how people buy in a grocery store. Mm-hmm. So what implications does that have for uh, not only the marketing folks, but the the people running the business to understand like, Ooh, actually we don't need a 18,000 square foot grocery store anymore because people are coming in a little less often and they're spreading out a bit more. They're not, we don't have that same capacity and flow issue that we had before. So it'll be really, yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting. I'm, I'm super curious to see what the fallout is at the end of this. Yeah. And how the, how the world shifts, I guess, outside of marketing, right? Because it all is in, interlinked, interrelated, however you want to describe it. Yeah. I mean, marketing is just sort of, you know, studying people's behavior and trying to serve something up in front of them. So really, you need to understand those pieces of it to understand how you're going to get whatever it might be in front of them and, and have them engage with it. Absolutely. So as we start to kind of wind down this episode, do you have any advice for marketers that they should be keeping top of mind? Like what's something that you've kind of been thinking about as we've been going through this, whether it be your career or this pandemic? I I think, you know, and we talked about this earlier on in in the episode and I I want to encourage people to go out and try to fail. And that sounds, you know, sort of dramatic, but go and be as creative as you possibly can go with your gut, think of new ideas and failing is totally fine. Provided that you learn from it, get up, dust yourself off and move forward. So, you know, I don't say try to fail and that, you know, you fail in everything that you do, but <laughs> go out and, and try to be innovative and try to push yourself and, and be creative and, and just go with those things that sometimes make sense, even though you might not be able to. Uh, quantify them or, or measure them. Well said. What's the best place for people to find you online? Where can they get at you and ask questions if they have any? Uh, you can hit me on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Uh, it's all just Fergie Kankade, one word. Cool. Well, Ferg, thanks for taking the time to join me today. I appreciate you sharing your insights and uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me. That was fun. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.